feel free to uh, read along this morning as we read our scripture. It comes from uh, the book of Mark, the 10th chapter. It says, as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. He said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these since my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Jesus saves. Hallelujah. If you ever find yourself in downtown, or if you ever find yourself in Southern California, specifically in downtown Los Angeles, you may happen to see this sign. Anybody ever been out there and seen this in, in L.A.? It's pretty hard to miss, really, the iconic red neon Jesus saves sign in downtown Los Angeles. Actually, has quite a story. It was once part of the Church of the Open Door. The church installed two of these signs in 1935 at the downtown campus of its Bible Institute of Los Angeles, Biola, as it's referred to. The institute moved to another location in 1959, and a preacher televangelist by the name of Dr. Gene Scott moved in and took over the space. Has anybody ever heard of... Dr. Gene Scott. Oh, Google that name when you get a chance. And then hang on. <laughs> Reverend Scott is a character. I mean, he's a real character to the point that my parents knew who he was. And if they ever thought that I gave 30 seconds to that man, I could be grounded. <laughs> Still, I remember as a teenager staying up late at night so I could turn on his TV show. He was obnoxious. He was arrogant. He cussed like nobody's business. He smoked one cigar after another while he swore at people, demanded that they send him money, and then he told them about Jesus. <laughs> and he didn't pretend that he wasn't fleecing people in Jesus' name. He'd look into the camera and he would threaten his viewers. And then he'd look at them and he'd say, if you're stupid enough to send me your money, I'm smart enough to take it from you. <laughs> uh. So that building that Gene Scott had taken over was torn down in 1988. And he salvaged the signs and had them installed at his new place, his new space, in downtown Los Angeles, which is the former United Artist Theater in downtown, downtown Los Angeles. That was the original office building for the movie studio 
that was founded by Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks and Charlie Chaplin and D.W. Griffith. After Gene Scott died in 2005, his wife moved one of the signs to her church in Glendale, California, and the other one is still at the old location, which is now the Ace Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. I'm sure there are some who see the sign and its message and they give it a hearty amen. But these days, it really serves more as a photo spot than anything else. If you were to look it up and Google it, you would see selfie after selfie after selfie in front of this big red neon sign. The message Jesus saves doesn't make much of an impact these days even in giant red neon. So, what does it even mean? I can tell you what I was told. I talk a lot here at BUCC about my church upbringing, and I know that some of you can relate to my experiences, but some of you may find them a little foreign. But many of us here share the teachings, even if we don't share the cultures or the traditions that they were wrapped in. If you grew up in an evangelical fundamentalist tradition like I did, or maybe another tradition that doesn't necessarily consider itself evangelical, but certainly adheres to fundamentalist theology, you were probably told that the torture and death of Jesus was necessary for you to have access to God, for you to be a Christian, for you to go to heaven, for you to be saved. It's called substitutionary atonement, which means that when Jesus died on the cross, He did so on our behalf. He became the sacrifice that satisfied God's need for justice. And because Jesus did that, we don't have to go to hell. In other words, we've been saved from hell. We've been saved. Jesus saves from hell. And truth is, that's about all there is to it. Simple as that. I grew up with that understanding. I grew up hearing it as a child and as a teenager and as an adult. I was informed by that theology in Bible college. And I preached it myself for several years as an associate pastor and as an evangelist. I told people from pulpits and from concert stages that if they didn't accept the fact that Jesus was humiliated, tortured, whipped, and nailed to two pieces of crossed wood until he could no longer survive, if they didn't and couldn't accept that formula, they'd burn in hell forever. That's what I told them. I told them if they wanted to see Grandma again, if they wanted to see their loved ones again, they were going to have to be saved and accept it. I want to make it clear this morning that I'm grateful for all that Jesus did. I'm grateful for His life. I'm especially grateful for His love. I'm grateful for His example. But I think, I have to say that I think I missed the mark in those early sermons when I took something that's so generous and made it so completely selfish and self-centered. I took something that was supposed to transform the world and I made it only about me, about my soul, about my salvation, about my eternity. I know now that being saved isn't 
about how I safeguard myself. It's about how I love others. The scripture story that we read a few minutes ago, just a couple of minutes ago, is a wonderful example of how to properly teach the theology of being saved. And the lesson comes from none other than Jesus himself. The rich young man who the Bible says was a ruler runs up to Jesus, kneels at his feet, and anxiously asks Jesus what he can do to be saved. Jesus reminds the young man of the commandments that he was taught as a boy. Specifically, interestingly enough, the ones that address how people should relate to each other. Jesus doesn't mention any of the commandments that speak to the God-human relationship, but He only speaks to the commandments that speak to how humans interact with each other. I think that's a very interesting and important point to make. So Jesus says, this is how you should deal with other people, and these are the commandments that tell you how you should interact with other people. You've done those things, then you're good to go. And so the young ruler says to Jesus, I've done all of those things. But surely there's something more. He should have stopped while he was ahead. But I can relate to this. I know why he would probe a little further. I know how it feels to worry that I'm missing something. Something vital to my being saved and to my getting into heaven. I remember as a kid laying in my bed on Sunday nights after hearing fiery sermons all day long. And I'd worry that my little brain had had a thought that was going to send me to hell. I'd worry that there was something that I hadn't confessed, which meant that I hadn't asked God to forgive me, which meant that I had no way, there was no way that I was going to go to heaven. What a horrible way to live. But yeah, I relate to this guy who's pressing Jesus on the details just to make sure he's good to go with God. So, after he informs Jesus of his good commandment-keeping grades, he wants to make sure that all the other bases are covered. And that's when Jesus hits him with the deal breaker. I love, though, that the scripture points out that Jesus assures this young man that he loves him. The Bible makes it a point to say that Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said, Rich young ruler, you lack one thing. So go sell what you own, give the money to the poor, and then you'll have treasures in heaven. And then come follow me. That's a hard one, isn't it? Jesus knew it was a hard one. We don't know if this guy was inheritance wealthy, if he was bloodline wealthy, if he was hard work wealthy, or if he was shrewdly or deviously wealthy but we know that he couldn't let go of it. And probably for any number of reasons, the same reasons that you and I would have trouble letting go of it, right? Comfort, pleasure, status, power, one of those things, some of those things, maybe all of those things. It's obvious that his wealth meant a lot to him, enough that he weighed it all out in his head and decided to hang on to it 
instead of using it for the benefit of others. That's really all Jesus was asking him to do, was help others. You know what Jesus didn't ask him to do? He didn't ask him to recite a sinner's prayer. He didn't ask him to repent. He didn't ask the rich young ruler to invite Jesus into his heart to commit to prayer. He just asked him to share his wealth. Want to be saved? Jesus said, okay, share your wealth. The sure sign that Jesus is in your heart is not how dogmatic you are how holy you are, how pious or spiritual or how much Bible you know. But it's how much you love other people. How willing you are to help take care of each other and to make room for one another. I love reading what Diana Butler Bass has to say about it. She's written and talked about this a lot, this notion. As a matter of fact, I was reading some of her words and that's really what inspired me to go this direction this morning. And she reminds us that the root word of salvation is salvus, which refers to being made whole or being safe, and not necessarily at another time, in another place. But it's salvation now, here. That's what it means to be saved, is doing it right here and right now. That's what Jesus is doing. When He saves us, He's not simply removing us from all the things that make our lives painful and lonely and hard. He isn't eventually just taking us somewhere else where none of those things exist. He's finding us where we are and pulling us closer to Him now so we can be saved now in the middle of our circumstances, not apart from them. When Jesus was on the earth, He was saving people every day. When He was touching lepers, He was saving them. When He was healing the injured and the sick, He was saving them. When He was sitting at the table with prostitutes and scoundrels, He was saving them. When He was inviting them to join His mission, He was saving them. I love the way Diana says it. She says, every miracle, every act of hospitality, all the bread broken and the wine served, everything that Jesus did saved people long before Rome ever arrested him or murdered him. All that loving, healing, and saving is what got him into trouble. And then Diana asks, so did Jesus get killed so that his death would save people? Or did he get killed because he was already saving people? Seeing these words, Jesus saves should mean something big. It should be significant. But we all know why they carry so little import these days. They've been shouted and screamed and preached and plastered and neoned up so much. Misused, misplaced, misinterpreted, misunderstood so much that they really aren't much more nowadays than a background that makes for a fun and interesting picture. Hopefully, though, they can mean something to us. They can especially mean something to us here at BUCC. Hopefully we can see those words and that message as Jesus always meant them to be. Not as a formula or as a way to escape this world, but as a way to live in it and to make it better.
if we're trusting them the way we should, people are going to find hope and assurance and comfort in the words Jesus saves. They'll find something more than fire insurance and an escape from hell. If we're using them the way Jesus did, those words will mean something again. People won't roll their eyes when we actually say it out loud that Jesus saves. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Bluegrass United Church of Christ podcast. We'd love to have you join us for a service sometime. We meet on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at 500 Don Anna Drive in Lexington, Kentucky. You can find us online at bluegrasschurch.org.